This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, you know, Jason, in the magazine uh, on newsstands right now, there's a story in our solution sections about the UK's National Health Service, and it talks about all the healthcare and patient data that it collects and owns and how useful it is for companies and providers uh, and how the NHS can capitalize on it. Well, we want to talk a bit more about health technology's impact on patients and also on the healthcare professional perfect person to do so. Vitor Hocha is uh, CEO of Philips North America. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's based in Seattle. Did I say your name correctly? You did. Close enough? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Like to get it right. Um, I'm so glad you're here because this is so topical. First of all, tell us a little bit about your annual future health index, what it is, what it measures. Yeah, we we have several measurements uh, in our future health index. One of them is related to telehealth, and that's the reason why we're here today to celebrate the centennial of the American Legion. Uh, Telehealth is a great technology, especially when we talk about access to veterans uh, in in U.S. Mm -hmm. and and across the world as well in in other uh, geographies. But specifically on the stats, um, we we know, for example, that about 54% of healthcare professionals, they're not using telehealth today in U.S. So telehealth, you mean somebody's got a problem, let's get on the phone, or what does it mean exactly? It means connecting the patient on a two-way video uh, with a doctor or clinician and then having uh, you know, access to the patient, uh, and then you can measure uh, the patient remotely through Wi-Fi and other technologies and then receive the data and then react to the data, help the patient to be diagnosed and also to follow treatment. And so why is it not more widely adopted? Because it sounds rather efficient. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, education is a big uh, por- uh, portion of it. Um, we, we really believe that telehealth can help to reduce the cost. Uh, about 58% of uh, Americans, they, uh, they, don't, they are reluctant to go to a, a, an appointment. Yeah. Uh, but when we talk about a virtual appointment, they are actually much more punctual. Uh, we see that at VA and we see that uh, in the private sector as well. So there's a greater benefit about uh, driving and expanding uh, telehealth, and that's why we're here today, today. So that's the patient side. What about the practitioner side? I mean, are they embracing this form of medicine? And healthcare, they are because they uh, it, it helps them to alleviate the burden, if you will, on on the physician side uh, by by having not having to travel to see the patients or the opposite, and and also by reducing the amount of uh, doctors that can see several sites. So you are in a central site, and then you can have access to multiple, just like we have at the, the VA. So we monitor about one one out of uh, four ICU beds at the VA. And they want to expand that. Mm-hmm. And that ability uh, of telehealth is because you are in a center and then you are seeing patients across a network. And that uh, really reduces the cost. It's good for the patient. It's great for the physician. It, it helps everyone in the whole healthcare system. Whenever we talk about any sort of healthcare, and we talk about it all the time, I yeah, feel like we, we think about privacy. We think about the security of our data, the security of our interactions uh, with our doctors. How do you build something that makes people comfortable with that aspect? We, uh, Philips, I'd like to talk a little bit about the company, but our company has been focusing uh, in healthcare. Uh, we made significant investments uh, in the company and also in M&A uh, acquisitions mm-hmm. over the past uh, three years. We acquired 20 companies, many of them in the digital space. 20 we, companies over the last year as well. Yeah. 
in, yes, in the, the past two years, uh, many of them in the digital space. And we, we have a, a very large group of software engineers. Uh, about 40% of our R&D is in U.S., and the majority of that, 40% of engineers, are in software development. So we, we go through a very uh, rigorous process in terms of uh, uh, development of our solutions, and we use all the security that is required for uh, privacy and uh, uh, securing our systems in a way that is not exposed, it's not going to expose the patients. What about the efficacy in terms of, it sounds like you're finally getting, in terms of the veterans, the VA community, finally getting some people to see doctors that maybe weren't before. What are, what are you seeing kind of on the, the, result, the outcome, outcome side in terms of care, you know, health care and their treatments? We have great examples of using telehealth, for example, in telepsychiatry. A uh, patient doesn't feel sometimes uh, comfort to go and see a doctor. Right. Instead, uh, the patient feels comfortable about getting in an appointment uh, on a TV uh, from, a, from a site that uh, you know, he does or she doesn't have to travel a uh, long time. And uh, we are seeing a big, big improvement in terms of cost of people showing up to the visits right. and great outcomes as well of patients, high satisfaction from patients using the technology to receive treatment or to hear uh, about how the treatment will go and being diagnosed as well. And so when you think about you know, the complexity and, and candidly, a lot of the controversy may be too strong of a word, but certainly mostly civil disagreement about what needs to happen broadly across the U.S. healthcare system, where some costs can be taken out, where some efficiencies can be gained, and where we can improve uh, the quality of care. How does technology play in even beyond telehealth? What else are you seeing uh, as you look across your business that could really move the needle in terms of making us feel better, uh, literally and figuratively, about our health? No one can solve the problem, right? Healthcare is quite complex. It requires a lot of partnership and collaboration. Uh, The great opportunity that we have is about collaborating uh, with research institutions, government, private sector, and then uh, breaking the barriers within the healthcare because only by breaking silos in healthcare we can really deliver seamless care. And that has been the strategy for Philips. But that's crucial. And do you think ultimately we break those silos in healthcare? It is. We, we are starting to, right? Yeah. We, we are focusing very much on breaking the silos in healthcare and providing that seamless care to, to the patient. But again, it requires major effort yeah. uh, from all the sectors to make that happen. Uh, we are, a great example is the partnership with uh, American Legion, and that's, the, mm-hmm. that's why we're here today. But I think it's timely. We're talking about, you know, the moon getting on, you know, man on the moon and the collaboration of so many government entities, research institutions, and private corporations to really solve a huge problem. This is the next moonshot, maybe. Yeah, I'm thinking healthcare. All right. All right, Vitor Hocha, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer at Philips North America, based in Seattle, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, we've been talking a lot about banks this week. Morgan Stanley, the latest to deliver their quarterly results. And as Carol mentioned a few minutes ago, trading, not so good, but trading in Morgan Stanley's stock, well, it's positive today. The stock up 1% as of right now. So let's dig into that and synthesize it with what we heard from the other big banks. Marty Mosby is Director of Bank and Equity Strategies at Vining Sparks. He joins us on the phone from down in what I'm sure is steamy Memphis, <laughs> Tennessee. Marty, great to have you with Carolyn and myself. 
Well, thanks. And uh, these bank earnings probably aren't steamy, but they yeah, yeah. Are, are pretty good and stable. And uh, a lot of the fear factors that we've had to kind of keep dealing with. Uh, last year, at the end of the year, it was credit. First half of this year, it's been net interest margin and the changing interest rate environment. And while those impacts are, are definitely materializing in some sense, they're very manageable. And uh, what we're seeing is that there's other levers that these bank managements are pulling to help overcome that. And, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley was one that we saw today that balanced that act out pretty well. Is that why we're seeing the stock up about 1% as we speak? It is. Um, like you've been talking about trading revenues were weak, but if mm-hmm. you look at the other sources of fee income, investment banking was stronger, asset management fees with the rebound in market valuations was higher. So they're doing the things that they need to do to show the balance. And that's what investors are beginning to see with these banks is, you know, they focus on one item uh, and really want to sink their teeth into that, and, and especially when there's some fear or anxiousness about how that might deteriorate. But there's a much broader story here. Capital is getting returned. Share counts are going down. Uh, you're seeing, like with Citigroup, the share count was down 10% over the last year. So those are things that are definitely helping profitability levels and helping earnings per share. And so, Marty, as you think about sort of the haves and the have-nots across Wall Street and the bulge bracket especially, who's coming out ahead and who are you still a little bit worried about? I mean, I think everyone's still a little bit worried about Wells Fargo, right? Well, certainly. And and Wells Fargo has its own reputational issues, management transition. Uh, So there's a lot of idiosyncratic uh, issues related to that. But if you just look at the, the general, you know, kind of movement that we're seeing, uh, net interest margin compression is definitely being validated in this particular quarter. Uh, some of that's going to be temporary because of the amortization, some premium on some securities that won't come, return next quarter. So it'll be a little bit better next quarter than what we saw this quarter, even though short-term interest rates are expected to go down uh, in between that. But if you start looking at J.P. Morgan, definitely is the gold standard. But the valuation reflects that. Uh, what we like is the Goldman Sachs right now. We think it's mm. at its inflection point and is actually kind of picking up some momentum. So it's in that bulge bracket, our favorite pick uh, up at that level. Is it a valuation call, a stock call, or is it actually a company call, fundamentally based? It's a, a three things. Uh, the reputational issue uh, is getting behind it. So you're seeing it kind of, em- kind of emerge from their pressures. Uh, when you look at the valuation, because of what they've been through, both on the valuation uh, and the reputational issue and the earnings, uh, the valuation is down. So they trade around tangible book value, and we believe that returns can continue to kind of step up as we go through the back end of this year. So you have the fundamentals in line with the discounted valuation with the healing from the prior issues. All three of those come together to, to make a real good combination that we think in the second half of the year, Goldman will outperform. So, Marty, I, I want to go back a, a little bit in, in time for you because you've worked at a bank. You've worked at a big you know, financial services firm. You understand this world uh, as well as anyone. If you look beyond the bulge bracket, w- what's the health of the, the broad banking system and the, and the broad sort of banking universe in the United States right now? Well, that's a great question um, because what happens with investors is that they want to kind of remember what happened last. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, if it rained really bad over here yesterday, it's going to rain tomorrow. And the banking system in the United States has transitioned and transformed significantly since the last financial crisis. So when you look at the state of liquidity, you look at the state of capital, 
these banks have built up so much in those two areas that now they're actually being able to deploy some of that to help overcome some of the other operational pressures that they have. So this actual state, the health, the stability, the safety and soundness uh, is much better than what we would have looked at, you know, a decade ago. Right. So right. that has transitioned when there's really not getting any credit for it yet. We'll have to go through a downturn before we actually can prove it out. But if you look at the numbers and really follow what you're seeing, uh, like you said, being from the inside out now, uh, you really can see the transformation has been significant. It's one thing to do a stress test. It's a whole other thing to actually go through the stress. All right. Marty Mosby, Director of Bank and Equity Strategies down at Vining Sparks in Memphis, Tennessee. Always Good to catch up. Well, you know, I love a day when there's a lot of private equity going around. And I mentioned earlier I was down at the New York Stock Mm -hmm. Exchange. I was checking up with, checking in, I should say, with the Al Rock Capital Partners founders, Doug Ostrover, Craig Packer, and Mark Lipschultz. These are guys who came out of some of the biggest private equity firms in the world, forming this new firm. They took a fund uh, public on the New York Stock Exchange today. I caught up with Doug Ostrover specifically on this notion of private credit and private equity. Here's what he had to say. You know, it's kind of interesting. We read a lot about the credit bubble. But remember, our constituents who are serving are primarily private equity firms. And, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. We don't read anything about the bubble in private equity. All right. Well, speaking of private equity, it was a big day for yes. Blackstone. They came mm-hmm. out with earnings. We were previewing this a little bit yesterday with Heather Proberg. Well, she's back. She's been busy. <laughs> she's back with us. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. to tell us a little bit about what Blackstone said, but also what a certain presidential candidate said about private equity. Hey, Heather. Hey. All right. So, so give us what? give us the top line and the big takeaways from Blackstone first. Yeah, Blackstone had a good day. I mean, not super surprising, but most of the focus was on fundraising. Um, another sort of slew of records. They're always breaking, bringing in more money. But then we have uh, Elizabeth Warren on the same day coming in and coming down pretty hard on these guys, not surprisingly. But she's unveiling this uh, policy proposal that will kind of cut at the heart of the way these guys make money. And, um, you know, she's not a front runner, but no one can really say how this would impact them at this point. Well, and you have to wonder, Carol, if Mm -hmm. this doesn't set the tone for the Democratic side of this. We are at a moment where the Democratic Party is fighting amongst themselves, to say the least, about the left flank. This definitely indicates sort of the leftward leaning uh, segment of the candidacy. And and to get a little bit more specific, she's talking about closing the carried interest uh, loophole that uh, allows private equity managers to pay a lower tax tax rate, closer to capital gains, tax rate on the profits that they make, and also, uh, interestingly, making them responsible for the debts and retirement pension obligations of companies they purchase. That's really interesting. So what does this mean? I mean, is this likely to gather some momentum, uh, or is it really just kind of a Senator Warren thing? I mean, it definitely has some backing, but it isn't new. I mean, she's gone after plenty of Wall Street Street players for a while. Mm. It just seems like this time around, 
Um, instead of hedge funds, private equity is definitely going to be more of a target in 2020. I think Jason's right. It certainly feels that way. I mean, and it does remind me a little bit of 2012. Yes. Um, when Mitt Romney was running for president against, you know, the incumbent president, uh, Obama. Obama and his campaign really came out and pilloried Romney for his time in private equity, essentially going after him in the same way that Elizabeth Warren is going after uh, the industry. The whole industry. Well, it is kind and of. And you also have Go ahead, Steve Heather. Schwartzman and yeah. Tom Barrick and plenty other players who are more prominent in Washington and, and getting, you know, better known because of their relationship with the president. Right. Yeah. No, it's a really good point. I mean, Wilbur Ross, the secretary of commerce came out of private equity. Steve Mnuchin sort of depending on how you look at him could either be a private equity guy or a hedge fund guy, but certainly came out of that sort of Goldman private investment uh, world. You mentioned Tom Barrick, you know, arguably one of the president's closest friend and Steve Schwartzman going back to Blackstone ran that business council. Did did Schwartzman talk at all about politics uh, on the call today, Heather? No, we didn't really get into politics. On the call. He <laughs> They're mean, avoiding he that. Uh, the leverage loans just yeah. a little bit, uh, but only to say they thought the credit markets were pretty healthy. Well, what was remarkable about the quarter? I mean, we, Jason and I were talking about, you know, record level of assets. I mean, these guys just get bigger and bigger. And I feel like almost every day or at least several times a week, we're talking about a new capital raise or a new fund by the private equity world. You know, so I'm just curious what, what stood out for you on that call? I think the the fundraising, the growing uh, dry powder seems Mm. the uh, issue with investors because they're wondering how all of their money is going to get spent. Uh, I think some of the broader economic issues, the trade war, all these kinds of things are growing concerns as, I would say, the same big firms are raising more and more and more money. Just how are they going to spend it and are they going to make mistakes? Well, and it was interesting, too, you know, when I was talking to the Alrock guys, uh, you know, this is Mark Lipschultz, who was very prominent uh, at KKR. Mm-hmm. You know, he was there for really sort of the big 20 years where uh, KKR really came into its own and really became one of the, the big uh, managers. You know, he and I were talking about the fact that when he joined KKR, they had $3 billion. They had, they had one $3 billion fund. And now, fast forward, they've got $200 billion. They had $3 billion, excuse me. Uh, and... Now KKR manages about two hundred billion dollars, and as Heather said, you know five hundred, almost five hundred and fifty billion dollars at Blackstone alone. I mean, this is these are enormous sums of money, and yet Heather, we don't hear that much about them not being able to deploy that capital, right? Exactly, and as prices get higher and higher, and they're looking for more opportunities and kind of darker places, it's going to take time to see whether or not their bets are as successful as they were, you know, years ago to get people to 20% returns, keep them coming back for more. So Heather, one week from today, we're going to hear from, I believe, KKR. So what is what we got from Blackstone? Maybe tell us about the bigger, broader private equity universe, if anything. Um, you know, quarter to quarter, it doesn't seem to change that much. It's what the firms say. I mean, these are longer-term investments people are making. With KKR, they do have more of a permanent capital play. They act off their own balance sheet. So there might be more interesting investments they could talk about that would differentiate them from the other firms. What was the most interesting question you heard from the analyst uh, talking to Blackstone today? 
I was plugged into the the leverage loan issues just because it does seem to be there's a lot of chatter in Washington about it, the Fed's talking about it, and with such a huge credit group like GSO, I was curious what the executives would say about whether these concerns are all overblown, and John Gray did say, yeah, we think the markets are relatively healthy and we're not seeing the cracks that are starting to worry other people. Right. Really, really interesting. All right. Heather Pearlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg, covering both Blackstone earnings today, as well as the latest rhetoric coming out of the presidential campaign directed toward private equity. As Heather said, not totally surprising uh, that mm-hmm. we're hearing this and and especially not surprising that we're hearing it from Elizabeth Warren, not a Wall Street fan, uh, to say the least, but interesting to see if this sort of gains purchase, as it were, across the broader field. Right, and across America, whether or not this becomes a great political argument that garners votes for her or support. So we'll have to see uh, what comes up uh, with that. talking about this story a lot. It's in the magazine this week. It's a great story in the technology section, and it's about Jeff Bezos and Amazon, who we know have changed our retail world so much, but it looks like he isn't quite done yet. So let's get to this story, uh, and let's bring in our own Brad Stone. He is Bloomberg News Senior Executive Editor of Global Technology. He's in our 960 studio in San Francisco. He's our go-to guy when it comes to Amazon, author of The Everything Store, and also with us, Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week Editor. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Studio, But I want to kick it off with you, Brad. Great story. Tell us about what Amazon is up to. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Well, my colleague Matt Day and I were curious about these Amazon Go stores. These are small convenience stores. You can go and pick up breakfast or lunch, a smattering of kind of grocery store items. And the innovation, the trick, is that you walk in, you scan a smartphone app, You pick things up off the shelf, and then you just walk out. So you don't wait in line to pay or swipe a credit card. And the question is, you know, how big a bet is this? And what we found out was that Amazon has been working on this for seven years. They have spent millions and millions of dollars on it. The the ambition was once much larger, uh, a full-size grocery store. And it's possible that they might get back there and, of course, really disrupt uh, an industry that they've been working on disrupting for quite some time. and so, Joel, Brad, I, yeah, yeah I, I got to ask, when you went there um, and, and, and actually used the store, what, what struck you about it? <laughs> the thing that's so striking is, you know, when you're looking ahead, it seems like a normal store. And then you look up and the, and the photographs and the Business Week story really capture this. It's uh, an absolute vision of our science fiction future. There are cameras all over the place pointing every which way. And and those images combined with weights in the shelves and cameras behind the shelves is how they're figuring out who takes what. So, uh, you know, on the surface, it seems like a very normal store. It's a little unusual to just take something and walk out. But then there's all this very expensive and complicated technology behind the scenes. I have to say, it feels like Handmaid's Tale when they go shopping. I don't know if any of you have watched that show without the handmaids, but there's cameras everywhere monitoring every move. That's what it felt like to me. A little creepy. So... Brad, what does this tell us about kind of Bezos' world that we apparently are just living in, in terms of Amazon's ambition? And where does this project go, pun intended, from here? Yeah, it really is all about the future. You know, they, they, it's, a, it's a $250 billion in sales company now, and they're already figuring out how do we get to $500 billion? How do we get to the size of Walmart or even beyond it? You know, how do we get to be the largest company in the world? And to do that, they know they have to get 
out of e-commerce, which represents about 10% of all global on, uh, global sales, and into the much larger world of physical retail. And so the Go store, along with some smaller efforts like their Amazon bookstores and their four-star stores, you know, there are, are experiments. You know, how can they bring their technology mindset, the vast resources they have, their willingness to experiment and fail, to really disrupting the, you know, centuries-old experience of buying things in, in the real world? And having gone to – there's one in Midtown that I went to because I was like, I got to see Check what this is like. The UI is actually surprisingly difficult because you get to the front and you're like, wait, how do I go in here, right? And and so it turns this thing that we all sort of take for granted, walking into a store, getting something, waiting in line, and it sort of like scrambles it in this it, way that you just right. do not expect. Um, and the, just to bring a little skepticism here, though, Brad, is this incredibly expensive experiment, right? We're talking millions upon millions of dollars in a way that... Amazon is one of the few companies in the world that can really do this. And at the end of the day, it's almost just a really high-tech bodega, right? <laughs> so for, for so now, what, what's, right. what's it all for when you, when you step back and think about this right. just in a bigger – like what is Bezos really after here? Right. And, and this is why it's, it was such a fun story to report. You know, it's, this is a, a unique company in that it will invest you know, so much – yeah, and sometimes get blinded by the appeal of technology, right, and and pushing the ball forward in these fields like AI and computer vision. And, and maybe it doesn't end up working, you know. And so right now they've got 13 convenience stores in Chicago, New York, uh, San Francisco, and Seattle. They're adding a 14th in San Francisco. It's going kind of slow. But we know they're, they're opening a much larger store in Seattle, probably a supermarket, in the Capitol Hill neighborhood in a couple of weeks. And so, you know, you have to look at these small convenience stores where they're probably not doing all that well as the beginning of something. And it's the beginning of an effort, and who knows where it'll lead, you know, to try to really disrupt the, you know, the Best Buys and the Walmarts of the world with technology. And will it matter enough to people that you can just kind of skip the cashier line and walk out? You know, as you say, Joel, they're adding... They're adding a little bit of friction on the walk-in process because you have to scan an app. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's why this company is so fascinating to cover yeah. because, uh, you know, they take a long time. They're very secretive. You know, hopefully we, uh, you know, lifted the, the veil a little bit on this effort. Uh, and, you know, they're willing to uh, spend a lot of money and kind of be misunderstood to try to, uh, you know, win these big prizes in the end. And that's right. I think the if, if there was an alternative headline that I kind of liked with this, it's like, this deli is a data experiment. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. like, totally yeah. what's happening here. Totally. All right. Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Tech, author of The Everything Store, and he's working on a sequel. Joel Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Uh, just a few minutes left of today's trading session. Quincy Crosby is with us, chief market strategist at Prudential Financial, based in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah, I always remember. Yeah, <laughs> joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I always think you're still like 
up in Boston? Yeah. Yeah, right? A little bit. At o- six in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I do remember. Anyway, good to have you here. Thank you. What's interesting is that our Vince Signorella, who kicked off our broadcast with us, sent me a story, and this was just as we started to see kind of stocks take a, a little bit of a move up, about Iran coming out and offering a deal with the U.S. Um, in terms of you know, hoping the U.S. will lift their sanctions and would accept inspections of its nuclear program. You know, things like this. There are so many macro stories out there. How do you see, how do you roll something like this into your market perspective, Quincy? Well, you you, you put it under the category of geopolitical risk, and that is one of the reasons I think you see gold as Mm -hmm. a part of a a portfolio, a prudent portfolio. Nothing compared with 2008 and 2009 when people were going out and buying gold because they thought quantitative easing would lead to hyperinflation. Just the kind of of hedge in the portfolio, along with treasuries, because if this were to escalate, or we would see, for example, the drone issue uh, escalate, uh, you would see gold get a bid uh, more consistently, and you would also see treasuries get a bid. That, that's your hedge. So you do put it in a portfolio, uh, and you have a barbell strategy, and, and one part of that barbell is actually a hedge for geopolitical risk. And so when we look at what's been going on in the market over the past couple of days, we just spent some time with uh, our colleague Paul Sweeney talking about Netflix, which has dominated the headlines. It's mostly a specific to Netflix issue, it seems. And obviously there's some commentary about the broader streaming business. So it's not an economic indicator. And yet, what a fascinating story. What do you make of it? Well, it, 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 you know, we watch Netflix because it's the first, right? Yeah. We, we wait for that after the close report from Netflix. And when they surprise to the upside, it gives the, the tone of the market hope, uh, optimism, and, 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 you know, it, it sheds light, a positive light on the rest of the fangs. So, you know, and especially coming into this market where every, every estimate has been beaten down mm-hmm. to the point that, you know, 84% of the 12% of the S&P that's now come to market uh, has beaten those estimates. So it tells you that if you don't beat and you really come in with something much worse than expectations, you are going to see your share price down, not one minute, but a whole day. But, and but that's Quincy, what you have. isn't some of what's going on, though, they're reduced, expect, reduced estimates for, those, for the earnings? So in other words, yeah, they might be beating, but again, here we are managed a little bit because the expectations kind of came well, way down, right? Well, they did come down, and it's become part of the, of the market. You know, it, but it's been the guidance that's been very important. So as long as you can uh, you know, convince the market that, that things are okay, not great, but okay, the market is going to... Is, is, is going to underpin your, your, your share price. But what Netflix did, and, and what's interesting about the subscription uh, rates, is that 126,000 U.S. subscribers left. They cut them off. And then it begs the question of down the road, what happens when there are multiple, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll buy Disney, I'll buy this one and that one. But when the economy turns and the, you lose your job, you're going to cut uh, the, the, those companies because you just can't afford it anymore. 
Talk to us a little bit about transports, because you've been watching it. Jason and I have been talking about with some of our Bloomberg uh, team here. I mean, always important to watch in terms of what it tells you about the overall health of the economy, and then ultimately what that might tell you about the overall health of the markets. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, perhaps they're not as, as, as powerful as they once were, because the big growth stocks, if you believe growth is slowing, that's where you're going to go, and that's what we've seen. But the one thing, if, 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 if the Fed only had one thing to watch, and it said, we're going to watch. A, a, a railroad stock will do CSX, they probably would have cut rates by now, today. You know, just, just come in in shock and awe. Because it tells you what's moving. And CSX, uh, you know, basically said volume is down 4%. But then we had Union Pacific. They're up, uh, but they also said that volume is down. However, they have been cutting their cost. And that is what you're seeing. And tomorrow we're going to get a report from uh, Kansas City um, Southern. We'll see what they have to say. So it isn't as if the volumes are up for Union Pacific. They're down, but they have been cutting costs. But for the macro picture that the Fed may want to see, they're witnessing it from these reports. There's no doubt about it. Union so, Pacific, by, by the way, the um, biggest gainer in the, S- uh, in the Dow Jones transportation average, I should say, right now. And yeah. so as we go through the balance of earnings uh, season, Quincy, what are the maybe consumer names that you're looking at that will give us a really good handle on how the broad consumer is feeling? Well, you know, some of the consumer discretionaries, let's put the Lowe's and and Home Depot in that category. Mm -hmm. And some of the, 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 the... uh, stores that sell uh, uh, goods for going back to school because yeah. that number is supposed to be up this year, uh, actually a record of what people are spending. It gives us a sense of, of our people spending. We know the U.S. consumer is in good shape. We saw it in the retail sales. We see it in the labor market uh, that um, unemployment is, is low. Uh, wages have been moving up just a tad, but we want to see if they're spending. So we go the cross-section. Con- we'll look at Back to school sales supposed to be a record, but we'll also look at uh, home furnishing mm-hmm. sales. We'll look at uh, again: Am I fixing up my house to sell or perhaps to stay? We know the consumer goes there, but I'm also going to look at, and we have been looking at, uh, restaurant sales. Uh, Americans are eating out now. It's selective, mm-hmm. but they're eating out. As long as gasoline prices stay relatively low, you have some extra money in your pocket after you fill up. As long as you have a job you're going to go out and spend a little bit. Media has actually done well. Hotels. Americans are traveling, absolutely traveling. And that gives us a sense of a solid underpinning for the economy. And then you have the Fed worried, do we need an inoculation, preventive medicine, as John Williams basically said this afternoon. Right, exactly. We did see some of those Fed comments. So where do you look for for trouble? Just got about 20 seconds here. We look at the credit market. We'll always look at the credit market first. Do we see the spreads widening out in the triple Bs, the lowest rung of investment grade, and, of course, in high yield? And we'll also look at the uh, CDS market to see – Am I paying more for insurance in case a company or a sovereign debt uh, defaults? And not worried Credit yet. Defaults and you're not worried yet with what we're seeing? Not yet, no. All right. Going to leave it there. Hey, Quincy, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Quincy Crosby, she's Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.